As I pray, I just want to bring to mind this verse from Romans chapter 17. Apostle Paul says this, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. So as we hear from the word of God now, as we open up his word, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, which is page 813, if you've got one of our church Bibles. As we hear from the word of God now, God by his spirit will stir up our faith and help us grow in faith, in love and maturity towards Jesus. Let me pray to that end and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we've already heard this morning, from all that you've already been teaching us this morning. Father, we pray now that you would stir our faith for Jesus, grow us in our belief that Jesus is God and he is our only hope, our only hope in life and in death. So Holy Spirit, lead us to truth now, we pray for the glory of the Son. Amen. Folks, all of us are used to, at the moment, especially this week, seeing graphs and statistics, right? We spend a lot of our time watching scientists explain these graphs on the telly. And and even in the last week, we've seen just um, what is unsettling trends of things kind of starting to creep up again. Uh, COVID-related admissions in hospitals creeping up again. COVID-related deaths creeping up again. There is something going on that is maybe a little bit quieter that is only just starting to come to the fore, an impact of the coronavirus that is, is truly devastating. And it's something that every single one of us relates to in some way. It's something that, that many of us have struggled for a long time, but maybe this pandemic has brought things to the fore like never before. Anxiety, depression, low mood. Bouts of sadness, dark nights of the soul, feelings of pointlessness, feelings of restlessness and emptiness. And the list could go on. And I know every single one of us in that room can relate, in this room can relate to something or maybe all of the things I've just mentioned there. The series that we're starting this morning is called Fear to Faith. Fear to Faith. And the reason that we're doing this series, the reason that we're going to just bury ourselves in this passage for the next four weeks is because all of us, every single one of us, are feeling one of those things in some shape or form, or are going to feel one of those things, or maybe have felt one of those things. Every single one of us, because we are human, has felt our feeling or will feel emotional and mental struggles. And for some of us, that's going to be a momentary struggle. For some of us, this has felt like it's been going on for years. One thing is the same. No matter where we are on that spectrum, one thing is the same. All of these struggles at some point, in some shape or form, are rooted in fear. Folks, we are all afraid. We are all fearful. And often our fears take us into a place of struggle and a place of difficulty. And I want to say to us this morning, the word of God is going to show us this morning, that there is hope in our struggle. There is hope in our emotional and mental struggles. And I know that you've heard that many times before. If you've been in church, you've heard that many times before. But I want you to hear it this morning and be convinced of it. There is hope for you in the midst of struggle this morning. Real hope, tangible hope, effective hope. And that hope comes through Jesus. So let's read the passage that Andy tried to lead us through um, so eloquently just a few moments ago. And uh, it's found in Matthew chapter 8. 
verses 23 to 27. It's talking about Jesus. Matthew says this, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Say to us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Just throw your hand up if you've heard that story before. I'm sure it's a familiar one to most of us. We, we know that story. And as Andy said, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at it from a different perspective. Um, three of the gospel writers talk about this story. They each pen this story. And we're going to see how it helps us move from a place of fear to a place of faith. And this morning, I just want to build a foundation for us. And as I build this foundation, I want us to see two things, two simple things. But two profound things. I want us to see that the storms are real and so is Jesus. The storms are real and so is Jesus. That incident that we just read and we just acted out there, folks, it is not a parable. There are lots of parables in in the Bible. This is not a parable. It's not a, a fable. This is a historical account of what actually happened. We're going to take time each week to look at what Matthew, Mark and Luke say about this. But, but each of the gospel writers write this down as fact. If you've been with us through the summer, you know the context and the backdrop to this story. So Jesus has just been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's been showing us what the kingdom of God is, this place where God rules and reigns uh, over his people. He's just been up on the mountainside teaching this famous sermon. And he comes down the mountain to, to a place called Capernaum. It's on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. It's called both. So we'll, we'll go with the Sea of Galilee. On the west coast, it's a port town. And Jesus comes and he's, he's been telling them about the kingdom of God. And now he teaches, he shows them in his life what the kingdom of God is. In the preceding few verses, you see him healing people and crowds are gathering. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Take me to the other side of the sea. And he wants them to take him to a place called Decapolis. It's an area of 10 towns on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's about a 20 kilometer journey by boat. It would have taken about six hours in good weather. Mark's account tells us it was evening. It was nighttime. They get in the boat and they start to travel across the water. Now the Sea of Galilee isn't a big sea, but there's something quite fascinating that happens on the Sea of Galilee. If you're a geography buff, you're going to love this. If you're not, just tune off for the next 60 seconds because this might bore you, but I find it fascinating. The Sea of Galilee is 200 metres below sea at sea level. So the air temperature on the top of the Sea of Galilee is cool. Surrounding the Sea of Galilee, you have, you have the Golan Heights. It's a, a range of mountains that rise up 2,000 feet above the sea. And what happens is a bit of a weather phenomenon where you get hot air on the top of the Golan Heights and it sinks down towards the top of the sea. And it has this kind of funneling effect across the sea. I can see some of you are still with me. You're enjoying this. This is good. There's a funneling effect across the sea and it whips up storms almost out of nowhere across the sea. And it's been known that the waves, it's not even a deep sea, but waves as high as 10 feet can gather up from nowhere on the sea. But presumably, as they leave port, it's calm. They wouldn't have left port if it was a storm. Mariners today would tell you uh, if they were sailing across the sea, they wouldn't even think of leaving the port if there was any sign of a storm. 
They sail out and partway across the journey, the winds start to pick up. The storm builds up. The King James Version, Ella's version of the Bible says, a tempest starts brewing. It's a bit more dramatic than our NIV and the ESV, isn't it? A tempest starts brewing. And they're afraid. The disciples are afraid. Remember who's in the boat. Jesus is in the boat. But the disciples are all in there as well. And if you know anything about the disciples, maybe some of their background, you'll know that Matthew, who writes this gospel, his background is he was a tax collector. And you have some of the disciples, they have a a spiritual education, a religious education. But there are four men in that boat of particular interest. James, John, Peter and Andrew. Anyone know what their job was? Fishermen. There's four fishermen in the boat. And these guys knew the sea really well. Like that, that was their trade. That was their background. They knew it more than anyone else. The storm is so violent that even they are afraid. They are so afraid that they think they are going to die. The storm is real for the disciples, folks. That's also real for us. See, the storm that the disciples face in Matthew chapter 8 here is just a picture of what all of us face. Storms are real for us. You've probably heard phrases like this before, the storms of life or, or she's going through a rough patch or he's going through turbulent times. What we read here in Matthew chapter 8 is a picture, a window into the reality for every single person who lives and breathes on this earth. At some point in our lives, we will be in that boat with the disciples. We will be in the midst of a storm and we will be overcome with fear. As we're knocked and battered around by the storm. Storms are real. But so is Jesus. The disciples are in the boat. But so is Jesus. He is there with them in the midst of the storm. Folks, folks, for the disciples, Jesus isn't just a concept. He isn't just something that they believe in. He is actually there with them in the storm. Like, read Mark's account. We're going to get there in a few weeks. It's it's actually quite comical how he describes it. There is a man in the bottom of the boat with his head on a pillow. It's Jesus. Jesus is in the storm. There is a man in that boat with him. And his name is Jesus. And he is also God. Jesus is real. Now, that might be a strange thing for me to say. I know most of you are Christians. You, you, you know who Jesus is. And for me to tell you this morning that Jesus is real, you're like, well, of course I know he's real. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think he's real. Our Christian faith is built on the foundation that Jesus is fully God, fully man. That he came to earth, put on human flesh. He lived a life that was perfect in every way. He died and he is right now, right now, seated as a man, fully God, the right hand of the Father. You know that he's real. It's one thing knowing that it's real, that he's real. It's one thing saying that he's real. And it's another thing to live in the reality of that. To live fully convinced that Jesus Christ is real. See, fundamental for us, for moving from a place of fear to faith, is understanding that we are all intellectual, emotional, spiritual beings who think, feel, and do. We think, we feel, and we do. And part of us moving away from a place of fear in our lives to a place of faith is making a movement towards thinking rightly, feeling rightly, and doing rightly. 
When any of those three things are flawed, we will slip towards fear. But when we walk in those three things rightly, we will move towards real faith in Jesus. So let me start at the top this morning with how we think, what we know to be true. Here's what I want to encourage us towards as we look at what it is to think rightly. Firstly, acknowledge that our storms are real. Acknowledge that the storms are real in your life. There's an interesting uh, little portion just before the portion that we read in Matthew chapter 8. You could read it when you go home. Jesus comes down the mountain. He comes to Capernaum. And there's two guys who come to Jesus, kind of want to be followers. And they, they say that they want to follow Jesus, but it's quite clear they have their own priorities. They have their own picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. They want to attend their their family first. And and it seems that one of them thinks that it's going to be a comfortable ride. And Jesus makes it really clear to them. No, no, no. Following me is not going to be comfortable. Following me is not a road to an easy life. And, And don't you know that to be true by just looking at what happens to the disciples? Verse 23, Matthew tells us the disciples follow Jesus. And what happens in the next few verses? Literally, they get to the point. This is what following Jesus looks like for them. They get to the point where they think they're going to die. Following Jesus is not a road to comfort. None of us, whether you're a Christian this morning or not, none of us are immune to the emotional pain that life brings. In fact, emotional, physical, mental, spiritual groan is just part of and parcel of life this side of the new creation. And one day Jesus will wipe away every tear. But for now, because of the broken world that we live in, we are all physically and emotionally weakened. And that is just part of being human. So let's not pretend that we're okay, folks, when we're not. The passage that we have just read allows us to acknowledge that the storms are real and we can stop hiding Depression, anxiety, low mood, feelings of emptiness. Folks, they do not carry a stigma with God. He is not surprised when you start to feel those things. He is not embarrassed for you. So stop hiding. Stronger men and women than you have struggled with these things. The greatest human king who ever lived, King David, Go and read what he says about how he feels. You've spent any time in the Psalms? Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. David finds himself in the midst of a storm and he he says this, I literally cannot stop crying. He feels down. His body is overwhelmed. Physically, his body aches. Psalm 38, he says this, my heart is racing. And Psalm 102, he loses the appetite to, to eat. Folks, what I've just described there, I know many of us can relate directly to those things. The greatest king who ever lived struggled emotionally. The greatest preacher who ever lived, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, most of you will know, lived just over 100 years ago. One of the most phenomenal preachers openly struggled with depression. At the age of 22, he was preaching a sermon. And someone foolishly cried out in the middle of the sermon, fire! Everyone ran to the exit of the door and there was a a crush as people tried to get out in the stampede. Seven people were killed and he felt responsible for it. And he bore the weight of guilt and shame for that for the rest of his life. He struggled with physical illness, gout for all of his life. His wife Susie, in her early 30s, she she became crippled, unable to walk and, and he felt responsible for it. She was unable to come to church and hear him preach. He would find himself 
with his head on the study table, weeping for hours like a child, uncontrollably. He struggled with depression until he died at 57. Folks, the storms are real. It doesn't matter how hard you try to protect yourself from it, how much you keep yourself in your bubble at the moment, how much money you have in your bank account, how good your friends are, how stable your job is, how clean your house is, something, folks, will ruin it. And strength in the storms does not look like closing your eyes to it. Last weekend, I took Ruthie and Mike out camping. Friday night, we went to Molvama. Ridiculous idea. It was freezing cold. Top of the mountain, Friday night. And we're sleeping in my, my uh, dad's uh, camper van. We're up in the roof. Micah fell asleep straight away. That's just his gift. He does that. In the middle of the night, there was a hailstorm. We're sleeping right underneath the roof. And the hail is banging down on the roof. Ruthie and I woke up. I was snuggled up with the kids. We were sharing body heat, trying to keep warm. And, and it woke us up. And it felt like it was going on for hours and hours. And you know what didn't make the storm go away? Me closing my eyes. Closing our eyes, the reality of the storm is not strength, folks. That's just foolishness. Strength in the midst of the storm looks like open our eye, opening our eyes and acknowledging that they are real. Storms are real. Trouble will come if it's not here already. And we need help. You don't get this in the text in Matthew chapter 8, but the disciples must have tried everything. Four seasoned fishermen must have tried everything in their own strength to sort it out, but they exhaust all of their human effort, all of their strength. They try everything except for the one thing that will prove to change everything for them. Eventually, they acknowledge the presence, the real presence of Jesus Christ, and they turn to him to help. It's the second thing we need to do. We need to acknowledge the, the reality of the storms and then we need to acknowledge the reality of Jesus, the real presence of Jesus. You can imagine the disciples in the boat trying everything to ride out this storm, bailing out the water, bringing down the sails, trying to steer it into calmer waters, but nothing is working. Nothing they do will fix it. They're afraid and they can't fix it. And they know that Jesus is there, but he's tired. He's gone down to sleep. He's just asked him to do a simple job. Just get me to the other side of the lake. It's 20 kilometers. Just get me over to the other side of the lake. They've got more experience than Jesus of navigating these waters. But in the end, they run out of options and they go to him. All of their pride put to the side. All of their experience put to the side. All of their self-reliance put to the side. They acknowledge the real presence of Jesus and they go to him for help. The storms will come if they haven't already. And how we feel and what we do ultimately depends on what we know. And knowing the real presence of Jesus in your life will bring hope in your storms like nothing else. Because knowing Jesus literally changes everything. I love how God says it in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. God says to us in the storms, be still and know that I am God. Why is that so powerful to know in the storms? Why are those eight words so powerful for us? Because being still and knowing that God is God, that, that truth in itself is a door that opens wide into hope. 
Knowing God is just not knowing a person. When we know God, we know that he cares for us. We know that he loves us. We know that he forgives us. We know that he saves us. Knowing God means knowing that God comforts us, heals us, protects us. Knowing that God knows, know, is knowing that, that we have someone who defends us, who advocates for us. To know God is to know that he strengthens us. To know God is to know that he knows us. All of those things are true of Jesus because he is God. And in every way, in each of those things, he is truly perfect. If you don't know Jesus, you need to hear that. You need to believe that he is those things. And you know, it's okay to say, Jesus, I don't understand you, but I trust you. Know that he has all of those things for you. And in that, find peace for your soul. Acknowledging Jesus, acknowledging the real presence of Jesus is the most powerful thing that any of us can do today. Hands down. Especially if you come in here this morning as someone who has no faith. Because if that is you, you need Jesus more than you know. You don't just need peace from Jesus. You need peace with Jesus. You know, it's thought that one of the reasons that maybe the disciples got so overwhelmed with fear on the boat is because of the Jewish association of, of the seas and waters with death. Like they believe that, that underneath the sea is where the death would, the dead would reside. And maybe that's one of the reasons they got so fearful. Now, while we wouldn't kind of go along with that and say that that's true, there is a storm, folks. We know this, that one day will take us. Death is inevitable for us all. And on that day, every single one of us in this room will need to be at peace with God. Remember the catechism from last week? Our only hope in life and death is that we belong to God. And if we don't on that day, we will stand before God condemned by him because of our offences against him. Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave is what brings his people peace and brings us into belonging to God. Jesus' death, he takes the punishment for our offences against God. And as a result, the hostility between us and God is removed. God the Father puts forward his son, sends his son to die for our sin, for my sin and for your sin. That is how far God is willing to go to make peace with sinful men and women like you and I. Sending his only son. And even just hearing that this morning, that God the Father would put forward his son to suffer a cruel death for you and I, even just hearing that should fill you with confidence of how committed God is to be with you in the storm. Jesus' death and his resurrection open the door for peace with God and it brings peace from God for all who have faith to believe. Moving from fear to faith starts here, folks. It starts with what we know. If you know Jesus, then there is a sure hope for you. A sure hope in life and death. A hope for peace with God and peace from God in the midst of the storms. A number of years ago, the first UK person to die from AIDS was a Christian doctor. He'd been working in Zimbabwe doing some research in a rural setting in Zimbabwe. He contracted the disease. His body began to degenerate and as it did, he became unable to communicate properly, unable to express his thoughts and his feelings. As he got towards death, he was lying down on his bed. His wife was at his side, both committed Christians. 
And he was struggling to say something to his wife. He was, he was straining to, to tell her something and she couldn't figure out what he wanted to say. And so he grabbed a, a, a pad of paper and a pencil and wrote on the, the pad, J, just a J. And so because they were doctors, she got the medical dictionary off the shelf and she flicked through all the J's and she was trying to work out what is it that you need, what you need. And, and he was going through everyone and none of them seemed to fit with what he needed. She got to the end of the J's, she turned to him and said, Jesus. And he affirmed. The one thing he needed in the greatest storm of his life was Jesus. Jesus was his only hope. Friends, the storms are real. But so is Jesus. And he makes all of the difference. So let us give up trying to save ourselves. Let us give up, give up trying to fix ourselves and to sail into calmer waters. Let us know that no matter how violent the storm, we can be still and know that Jesus is God.